All right, guys, good morning. Um, this morning, we will be in the book of James. So this year, and it'll probably take me all year, I will be preaching through the letter of James. Now, I'm excited to preach through this letter, not because James is my name, uh, but because I've never actually done an in-depth study of James. Actually, if I'm, if I'm being honest, um, James always intimidates me because it's a, a super convicting, super practical. So it has been a tremendous blessing for me, and as I preach through it this year, I really hope that it will be a blessing to you guys as well. But at the end of the day, um, you can't really go wrong preaching any book of the Bible because as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. So turn with me, if you will, to the letter of James. James is after Hebrews. It's before 1 Peter. And this morning, we will be looking at the first 12 verses. And before we dig into these verses, we need to first ask the question, who wrote this letter and why? Well, the author in verse 1, if you look at verse 1, the author is very clear. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most theologians agree that this is Jesus' half-brother James. This is not James the Apostle. So if you remember, during Jesus' life, we are told that even his own brothers did not believe him. We know that from John chapter 7. But after Jesus died on the cross and was buried and was resurrected, he appeared to his, his half-brother James. We know that from 1 Corinthians 15. And James was converted. So James became a believer in Jesus. And not long after, he became a leader of the Jerusalem church. So he is an elder of the church. He is referred to in Galatians as a pillar. He was instrumental in motivating Jewish believers to share the gospel with Gentiles. We know that from Acts 15. And his primary ministry, because he's in a church in Jerusalem, was ministering almost exclusively to Jewish Christians. Um, however, sometime between A.D. 50 and A.D. 60, persecution exploded in Jerusalem against Jewish believers. And so the religious leaders, the, the same ones that killed Jesus, most likely the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the experts of the law, they were upset about this Jesus movement that it was continuing to grow. And so they were upset that Jews in the holy city were abandoning Judaism for Christianity. It's bad for business. And so they made life miserable for these Jewish Christians. They banned them from the synagogue. They blacklisted them from employment. And they were driving these Jewish Christians out of the holy city by intimidation and threats. So James writes this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Some translations, those who are scattered, the 12 tribes that are scattered. And he is writing to these Jewish believers who were fleeing from persecution and scattered throughout most of the Mediterranean world, really. 
And the purpose of James's letter is to encourage these believers. Because James knew that when trouble happens in the Christian life, there is a tendency to shrink back, to become passive, and to keep our faith private. And so James writes this letter that is extremely practical, it's extremely ethical, and it's tangible to help motivate these believers to persevere and to live out their faith. So he doesn't want them to take their foot off the gas because of their adversity. He wants them to reflect a transformed life in Christ no matter the circumstances. And so that is our context. And so the first things that James deals with in these first 12 verses is trials, trials. Right off the bat, James has something to say to these Christians about their suffering. And the first thing he does, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is he looks at all their problems, he looks at all their misfortunes, and he writes in verse 2, Consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. This almost comes as a shock, doesn't it? It almost seems insensitive or offensive, kind of like a trumpet blast in our ears after we've been through hell and back. Because we might expect something warmer like, hey guys, I'm, I'm so sorry that you've been persecuted. But that's not what James says. He opens his letter by saying, Consider it a joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. He looks at these Christians, Christians who have lost their jobs. They've lost their homes. They, they, some of them are, have lost loved ones. And he says, I want you to consider all of your current troubles a joy. And this isn't a suggestion. It's not even an encouragement. This grammatically is a commandment that James is communicating to these believers and to us. Now this isn't a new teaching in scripture. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 to rejoice in our persecutions and be exceedingly glad. Peter tells us in his first epistle to rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And Paul tells us in Romans 5 that we should rejoice in our sufferings. So this isn't a new or a strange teaching. It's not a new doctrine. Now, I will say to the natural man and to the flesh, this idea of having joy in adversity is absurd. Because the world says it's a joy if you avoid trials. And society says it's a joy if you can escape trials. And if this world is all there is, then adversity is nothing less than a curse. It's something to be dodged at all costs. And even our own flesh loves it when we can maintain comfort and dodge suffering. But scripture says the exact opposite. Christians should have joy when they experience various kinds of trials. And we have biblical examples of this throughout scripture. Take, for example, the Apostle Paul. 
He rejoiced in his afflictions after he was arrested. We know that from Colossians 1. Or Peter and and John, they rejoiced after they were arrested, and then they were flogged. We know that from Acts chapter 5. And even our Lord Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross of suffering. We know that from Hebrews 12. And so this isn't wishful thinking. This isn't something that is unattainable. This isn't something set set aside for the spiritually elite. This is the universal expectation for the children of God who have the Spirit of God. Joy in our trials. It's commanded, it's expected, and it's available to us in Christ Jesus. And so as hard as this might be to hear, the reality is this, is that Christians will face multicolored trials in this life. The prosperity preachers are wrong. Scripture is so clear on this. We must face many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. That's what we're told in Acts 14.22. Jesus himself tells us that in this world we will have tribulation. That's John 16.33. And Paul tells us that everyone who lives a godly life will, will face persecution. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so the question isn't, will I experience suffering? If you are a Christian, you will face suffering. That's certain. That's something that we all have in common. Even scientists say that we don't even see colors the same. There's many things that we don't have in common, but something that we all have in common is that we will suffer. And so the question we need to be asking is, How will you suffer? Will you suffer with joy in Christ and overcome? Or will you suffer like the rest of the unbelieving world in self-pity, in anger, in hopelessness? See, God is more interested in our attitude and in our response to trials than he is about the nature of our trials. He's sovereign over our adversity. At the flick of his hand, all of our troubles could go away. At the whisper of his voice, he could make mountains move. So he determines the length and the severity and the outcome of our trials. He's not concerned about the form or the nature of our trials. He's got that under control. What he is more concerned about is our attitude, our character, and our response. He is concerned about our reliance upon him. He's concerned about our joy in him during these times. So it doesn't matter how many trials you have this morning. It doesn't matter if they're big or small, long-term, short-term, temporary, chronic. The biblical and the arresting command is, is brothers and sisters. Consider it a pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. But the question, really, is why? I mean, who in the the world looks at an empty bank account and pull pull Molly aside and say, Hey, honey, let's, let's just consider this a joy that we got no money. Okay? Who in the world gets persecuted, loses their job, 
and says, hey, family, let's gather around the table. Let's give thanks and let's have joy that daddy just lost his job and that we're being persecuted, right? Who faces sickness or, or chronic pain and grief and says, I'm going to rejoice. Who does that? Why would anyone do that? Well, James tells us the reason for our joy in verses three and four. He says, consider it a joy knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So we can have joy in our troubles because it will refine your faith. And when your faith is refined, you will grow spiritually. And when you grow spiritually, you become more mature in Christ. And when you are more mature in Christ, you are entirely satisfied in him and in him alone, lacking nothing. So in other words, we can have joy in our present trials when we have the future outcome in mind. We can rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that we will come out the other end more like Jesus. So no matter what comes our way, no matter how big or bad the situation is, whether it's a sink full of dishes or whether it's nuclear war, we can have joy and say, this will test my faith. This will produce in me endurance, making me mature in Christ and completely satisfied in him. That's the teaching here. So James isn't telling us to enjoy our trials. There's a difference between happiness and joy. He's not telling us to be stoic and heroic and put on this forced smile and move forward with our heads down and ignore the pain. He's not saying that. He's telling us to have joy in our trials and to have a positive biblical perspective about it, knowing that God will use it in such a way that it will actually develop your faith and not destroy it. That's the teaching here, and that's why we can have joy. So adversity then, it's not an enemy to the Christian life. It's a part of it. Trials help us to see things which we little expected to see. We find our faith weak when we thought it was strong. We discover that our views were dim where we thought they were clear. We find ourselves desperate for God on a whole new level. I mean, think about it for a moment. You wouldn't be who you are today, spiritually speaking, without enduring the hardships you have already faced in life. So God sees the big picture. He's not being mean. He's not being cruel. He's not sitting back passively watching his, his children suffer. No, he's sovereign over it all. He's intimately involved whether you see it or not. And he's working all of it for our growth and for his glory. There's nothing that has happened in your life that he didn't already know. And there's nothing happening in your life now that he is not going to use for your spiritual growth. So church, do you see it yet? When we talk about trials and suffering and adversity, do you see it yet that adversity pushes us closer to God? It weans us from worldliness. It strengthens our faith. It makes us more like Jesus because he suffered. 
Like gold in a furnace, it removes impurities. It causes us to act upon that which we truly believe. Therefore, we don't have to look at horrible life circumstances and say, oh man, I I hate my life. We don't have to look at at tragedy and say, "This, this sucks, poor me. We don't have to shake our fist at God. No, we can look at hardship and say that there's joy here. I might not see it, but there's joy here and there's glory here and there's growth ahead and God will use it to mold me. Can you see how practical and how timely this is, especially during a difficult time in our society? We need to hear this. When a loved one dies and you're not sure how you're going to survive the grief, when your finances dwindle and you're unsure how you're going to provide for your family, when you're diagnosed with a sickness, uncertain on how you're going to manage through life with the pain, when you're experiencing spiritual warfare and you feel like you're losing your mind, you can rise up in the power of the Holy Spirit and cling to the joy that is found in Christ and you can say, God's going to use this. God knows the finished product. God knows what he's doing. I'll come out the other end more like my savior. I'll come out the other end with a deeper knowledge and a deeper fellowship with God. It will result in the testing of your faith, which is more precious than your comfort. Yes, even life itself. And the beautiful thing about the Christian is that it's a win-win situation. Because even if the trials are so massive and you die, Either way, it's a win-win. Because if you make it through the trial, you'll be more like Christ. But if you don't make it through the trial and you die, you get to be with Christ. It's a win-win. So I don't like the way this feels. These are all natural emotions. I don't like, I don't enjoy the pain. You can ask my wife when I get the flu. I don't see in the moment how this is in God's plan. But one thing I do know that when I get to the other side of this trial, I will come out with a greater faith, a newfound maturity, and a deeper intimacy with God that I otherwise would have never obtained. We serve a God who works all things for the development of his children. Yes, even the most horrible tragedies. He is able to take our afflictions and transform them and use them in a way that it makes us more like Jesus. And if that's not cause for joy, I don't know what is. So church, do you consider trials a joy? Or do you, like the unbelieving world, get mad at God when you suffer? When times get tough, do you see it as an opportunity to grow in faith? Or do you view it as an opportunity to give up and turn to the pleasures of sin to alleviate the pain? Are you drawing joy from Christ in your hardships? Or are you in the flesh complaining and accusing God of not being good when things don't go your way? Joy should be our attitudes in trials. But the next question, naturally, is what should our response be? How do, you, how do you respond when trials come? When troubles come, where, where do I go? What do I do? Trials can get complicated, and navigating a way forward 
or making the right decision is not being good, or I'm sorry, is not easy. Well, James tells us how we should respond in verses 5 through 8. He says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So what we need most during difficult times in life is wisdom. We need wisdom. I mean, seriously, if I get sick or ministry fails or a tragedy happens in my life, instantly my emotions take over and I start questioning everything. Does God even love me? Am I even saved? And so our, our response in these moments is not asking God to take away the issue per se, but a lot of the times we need to ask God for wisdom so that we can respond appropriately and overcome the trial by faith. And so this idea that God will never give us more than we can handle is ridiculous. We can't handle anything. We can't even take another breath without God permitting it to happen. You do not have the power, nor the logic, nor the intellect to overcome the storms that you will face in this life. And it was designed this way. We need God and his wisdom. We were made to rely on him. So God doesn't want us to rely on our own understanding. He doesn't want us to try to solve things on our own. God wants us to go to him in our mess and say, God, help me. God, I need you, and I need wisdom. Now, there's an objection here. Someone might say, but Jimmy, I haven't been the best Christian. Plus, I haven't been talking to God, and now I'm in trouble. It feels hypocritical. All of a sudden, I'm going to go to God now that I'm in trouble. He's not going to help me. He's not going to give me wisdom. I don't deserve it. No, 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 says James. Look at the text. He says, God is generous. He gives freely without reproach. So if there is any prayer that God's going to answer, if, if there's a prayer that's going to get his attention, if there's a prayer that's aligned to his will, a prayer that he would even answer for the weakest Christian on earth, it is this, when his children ask him for wisdom. If you don't believe me, ask Solomon. It said that Solomon asked God for wisdom, and then the next verse, it says, and the Lord was pleased that he asked for wisdom. So God wants to give us wisdom. He wants to help us discern, to help us be spiritually well, to help us make God-glorifying decisions during hard times. His wisdom never runs out. He's not too busy. He will never get annoyed at this request. And God, I'm going to say this, Listen closely, God is not like our parents, okay? He's not like man. He knows exactly what we need, and he's entirely gracious. So if you are here this morning and you're struggling with anything, a big decision, a trial, a relationship problem, ask God for wisdom. Go to him 
and ask in faith, and he will give it. You know, a lot of the times we just don't ask. I had a bag of Skittles a few months ago, and I was sitting across the table from Owen, and, you know, selfish me, I didn't think to share with him. So I'm eating, I'm sitting in front of Owen eating this whole bag of Skittles and just chowing them down. And Owen's across the table, and he's squirming in his chair, and he's like looking at my bag of Skittles, and he's just like, oh. And I'm like, Owen, are you okay? And he's like, yeah. And I just keep eating the Skittles. And he starts groaning again, and I'm like, he's like, oh. And I'm like, seriously, dude, are you okay? Like, what's, like, are you sick? Does your stomach hurt? And he's like, no, I just, oh, could I have some of your Skittles? He didn't want to ask me. And that's part of our problem, too, with, with God. I would have given him the whole bag if he asked for it. A lot of the times we don't receive because simply we don't ask. The only thing that's going to prevent you from receiving God's wisdom, says James, is unbelief. We must ask God for wisdom and faith. James describes the doubter as the double-minded person, someone who is unstable in all that they do. They are like a wave of the sea going back and forth. They believe God, but not really. They ask God for things, but nah, he's not going to really provide. They ask God for help, and then a moment later they're saying, God's not going to help me. This kind of person should not expect to receive anything from God. God wants us to seek him by faith. There are many people in the world crying out to God for wisdom, but it is only those who seek him by faith that receive it. Those who ask in unbelief or ask with evil motives should not respect, expect to receive anything from the Lord. So we need to be joyful in our trials. Our response is asking God for wisdom in our trials. But what about our position? What do we do about our position that we find ourselves in? It's a legitimate question, and James deals with this in verses 9 through 11. He says, let the, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises together with a scorching wind and dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich will wither away while pursuing his activities. Now, this might seem scatterbrained. Is James moving on to a new topic? Well, I don't, I, I don't believe so, because in verse 12, he says, blessed is the one who overcomes trials. So um, I, I think what James is doing here is he's bringing everyone on the same playing field. The poor are to remember their high position. For they have been exalted by the gospel. And those who are rich in this world are to remember their low position because they have been humbled by the gospel. And so the rich brother should come to realize that at the cross, he stands on the same level with the, with the poor brother. Both have been given a new status in Christ, which is their true ground for glorying. And both We'll face trials in this life, and both should have the same attitude, joy, and response asking for wisdom. And so we as humans have a terrible tendency to look to money or wealth as the solution for our problems. We think to ourselves, if I had more money, I would face less trials. 
or money will make this problem go away. But the reality is that is a lie and an illusion. Because we only have one position in the Christian life, and that's our gospel position. It's not rich or poor, okay? It's our gospel position, and that's the only thing that matters in trials. Money or your social class isn't in the equation here. If you are poor and you think that money will fix your trials and your problems, you are wrong. And if you are rich and you think that having less money would eliminate your problems or your trials, think again. So whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter here. Money doesn't cure and it doesn't prevent adversity. So no matter where you find yourself on the socioeconomic scale, This morning, the only thing you should be boasting in is your gospel position. So if you're poor, boast in your high position. The gospel has lifted you up. And if you're rich, boast in your humiliation. The the gospel has, has diminished your pride and brought you low. And both are good things. So boast in your gospel position. Now, there's often an objection here. Someone will say, but Jimmy, if I had more money, I could pay off this medical bill. It could literally fix a trial. Or I could pay off my student debt. Or, Jimmy, if I had less money, people wouldn't be after me always trying to get my wealth and trying to get my money. And I wouldn't be having to do all this money management, right? So doesn't money actually fix some real-life trials? Seems like it. But what we fail to recognize in asking these questions is that if God wanted us to have more money, we'd have it. And if God wanted us to have less money, he will do it. Have we forgotten that the only reason we can take our next breath is because God sustains us and allows it? So have we forgotten that God is the one who determines our finances to the penny, not us? He determines the length and the severity of our trials, not money. Read Job. We put so much hope and focus on money, as if that is the solution to our problems, and yet the Bible really has nothing good to say about it because it often draws our hearts away from the Lord. So as you face trials in this life, remember this. Trials are inevitable. They are inevitable for the rich and the poor. And you will not overcome trials by having more or less money. We overcome by the joy that we have in Christ. And we overcome by relying on God for wisdom as we seek Him by faith. And we overcome by boasting in our gospel position. We don't conquer trials through human strength or earthly wealth. We overcome by the joy of the Lord and His divine wisdom. Not self-pity, Not self-reliance, not money, but spirit-filled joy, God-given wisdom, and gospel-centered boasting. That's how we overcome. And it's in these things the children of God endure. And James summarizes his whole teaching in verse 12. He says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So after telling these Christians how they should think about their trials and how they should respond to them, 
James says, happy are those who overcome. And they should be happy because if they overcome, they will receive the promise of God, the crown of life. What a promise. And James is not saying that we earn eternal life by overcoming. That's a misinterpretation. Notice that the phrase standing the test is directly connected with the phrase, those who love God. In other words, those who truly love God are those who overcome. Think of the parable of the sower. Those who persevere to the end, those who do not allow the devil to destroy their faith, those who do not allow the troubles of this life to choke out their love for God, those who fall into sin but don't stay there and they get back up, these are the people who truly love God and will be rewarded eternally. But for those who do not stand the test, those who face trouble and then blame God, those who lose faith because life doesn't go their way, those who forfeit the faith when tragedy strikes and they resent God the rest of their life, saying, this is your fault. They need to examine their love for God. Because if your love for God is dependent upon your earthly comfort and prosperity, you have missed the gospel. Because our love for God is not dependent on our comfort or our prosperity or our health or our wealth. Our love for God is dependent upon one thing, and that's his love for us. We love him because he loved us first in Christ Jesus. We love God because of who he is. So he saved us from eternal hell. He's called us into his family. He's adopted us. He's given us eternal life. He freely gave us Christ. He's lavished on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We've been given everything in Christ for all things pertaining to life and satisfaction. So it's all ours in Christ forever. So if we need to suffer a short while on this timeline of eternity, going both directions, let us do so with joy. Let us do so clinging to God for wisdom, and let us do so boasting in our gospel position. And let us stand in the, in the middle of the storm with the full armor of God, holding up the shield of faith, standing the test. Don't move to the right or to the left, and don't allow anything, not circumstances, not troubles, not demonic forces, not even your own failures, sway your love for God. Fight the good fight. Keep the faith. Finish the race strong because in the blink of an eye, we will be in the presence of the Lord. Whether he returns or we die, life is so short. And as Romans 8 says, our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So that's what we have to look forward to. So whatever trials you're facing here this morning, whether big or small, have joy, seek wisdom, and with an open Bible and a heart full of faith, endure the test. Stand firmly on the foundation of Jesus. And whatever wars you're facing this morning, whatever you may face in the future, may you endure in your love for Jesus Christ. May you conquer and rise above the circumstances with your eyes fixed on Jesus. He is worthy and he understands because he suffered 
on our behalf. So if you are a true believer in Jesus this morning, know this, that God is not hating you in your trials. He's not abandoning you. He's conforming you more into the image of his son. And God is with you. So have joy, seek wisdom, boast in your gospel position, and do this until you enter glory where there will be no more sorrow or pain or suffering. As you receive the crown of life from God himself and hear the blessed words from him face to face, well done, my good and faithful servant. How blessed is the one who endures trials, those who stand the test, for they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who deeply love him. Let's pray.